morning, bless you all. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just read our text for today. So this is short text today. Proverbs 22 verse 4. Uh, before we read this, some of you have different, uh, different translations. Some of you might have the ESV or the New King James or the NIV, and so you might see it read slightly differently. But uh, the ESV renders Hebrew this way, The reward of humility and fear of the Lord is riches, glory, and life. Your NIV might say, uh, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its reward is riches, glory, and life. And that's, that's fine too. It's making the connection between humility and the fear of the Lord, which we'll look at a little bit today. So whenever someone says, right, the sermon is on humility, uh, it's a quick way to empty the building. Because it's, it's like you know, going to the doctor, we all know that we need to go, we really don't want to go. Uh, but uh, this is uh, the grace of God to us uh, that he calls us to humility. And uh, before that, I, before we get going, I want to read this passage from the book of Revelation, chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne of God were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now... This is scary, strange stuff. But the meaning of it all is... Actually, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know what it means. <laughs> I don't know what it means. So um, humility comes from reading the scriptures and seeing the things of God and recognizing our inability to comprehend the things of God. If you know anything about God, if you understand anything about God at all, it is only by His grace to you that His Spirit has shone this light about it in your heart. So let's, with that humility, approach the scriptures today. All right, I have one question for you today. One question, and this is what you need to take away and go away with an answer to. Do you live for yourself, or do you live for God? Do you live for yourself, or do you live for God? You must not go away from here without having an answer to that question. It has eternal consequences the answer to that question. And there are no other options. It's one or the other. You live for yourself or you live for God. So we're going to consider today as we look at, at this text which speaks about humility, we're also going to have to define and look at what, what the Lord says about pride. And so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to dig deep in Difficult work here. The, the, the word applied to pride is, is a searing pain. It's the dying of self. 
when we apply God's word with the washing. It's like the salve on the, on the wound that cleans out uh, the heart. And so this is difficult, but it's life-giving. I think that pride is one of the most tolerated sins in the church. And in the world, it's a celebration. The world celebrates pride. The world exalts celebrity. Uh, It celebrates gross immorality. It condones and celebrates the slaughter of infants. Uh, It celebrates violating God's design uh, for mankind. Uh, Pride is everywhere in the world. It's the fuel uh, for the world. But we can sometimes allow roots of it to remain and take hold in, in our hearts as, as believers. And so uh, God gives us the tools to deal, to deal with this. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you saw a car traveling at 200 kilometers an hour on the verge of a cliff that goes around sharp corners and it's raining. What's going to happen? It's going over the edge. We all see what's coming. We look, at, we look at the situation and we can see the end before it happens. And we have signs in South Africa, I'm sure you've all seen them, the Arrive Alive campaign. What's the big slogan? Two words. Speed kills. Speed kills a lot of people. In, in 2017, 14,000 people died in speed-related road accidents in South Africa. Okay. But I want to submit to you that there's something else that has killed far more people. Its death count is in the billions. That's pride. So when you see that sign next time, I want you to see a different slogan. Pride kills. So it is no light matter uh, that we are, are discussing here today. And I want to give you a sense of what God thinks about the proud. So if you turn with me, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. And I'm going to read to you from, from verse 3. This is a little bit of an extended reading, but this is, will help us with our context. So Isaiah 14, uh, verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, this is Israel's remnant, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So God is saying, once I have released you from this service um, and given you respite from the pain, this is how you will taunt the king of Babylon. So this is the judgment against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were the kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pump is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps 
Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, this is pride, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. That's what pride is. I will raise up to the heavens and I will set my throne on high. And God says, your pomp will be brought down to Sheol at the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. This is what pride does. It kills. And if we look at Proverbs 16.5, it says, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. These are strong, strong warnings and, and, and words. So why does God hate pride so much? Why? Why does he, what, what about pride re- receives this level of response? There's seldom other places in scripture where we see this kind of fury of God towards sin. It's because pride and humility is about, it's a matter of worship. That's what we're talking about today. God wants to be worshipped Rightly. Humility worships the self. Oh, sorry, pride worships the self. Humility uh, worships God. And I want to tell you that this thing of worship, the glory of God, is the great and central concern of Scripture. It is not you. It is not even what is done for you, but how that glorifies God. His great plan of salvation is about his glory. His great concern is the glory of his name. And that's what worship is about. When we worship ourselves, we become thieves of glory. We steal glory away from God and direct it towards ourselves. That's the essence of pride, to direct worship inward and to glorify yourself. From from Genesis to Revelation, when God talks about Israel, he said, The reason that I have uh, elected you as a people is for the glory of my name. Not because you are great and many and powerful and wealthy, but so that I would be glorified by taking the lowest of the low and exalting them above the nations. Right? And is that not the same as you and I? I? I know it's true of me. I was the lowest of the low. And God is glorified by meeting that person in that place and making them like Jesus. You didn't do it. God gets the glory because he did it um, for you. So, because he is glorious, because he's worthy of honor, because he's worthy of worship, he takes so seriously this issue of pride that says, you're not worthy of honor, you're not worthy of glory, you're not worthy of worship, I am. Not to you, not to you, but to my name. Be the glory. And in Psalm 1153, the correct response is, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. And pride does the opposite. And I'd like to suggest to you that there is no neutral ground in your relationship with God. You know, a lot of people have described Christianity, it's like it's a personal relationship with God. Now that's true, in a sense, it is. But I want to tell you that every person on the face of the planet has a personal relationship with God. And for some, that is a, it's a very dangerous relationship. Because they're enemies of God, they're in rebellion to Him, they refuse to worship Him. And for believers, it's a wonderful, glorious relationship where because of, peace, because of the peace of Christ's cross, 
We are in communion and fellowship with him eternally, and we're the recipients of his blessing and his grace. But all those other people have a relationship uh, with God, but it's one of judgment, and they will be under his, his judgment, which is why we call people to repent and trust in, in Jesus Christ. So there is nobody in neutral ground. Either you are in Christ or you are out of Christ. Uh, who here has heard the term DMZ, demilitarized zone? Anyone know that? Okay, so what it means is, in an armed conflict, we've got two nations um, battling it out. If there is a, a contact between the borders or wherever a battle is taking place, as part of a peacemaking process, they will demilitarize a zone where there's no conflict allowed. And so in there, there can't be uh, you know, actual battles taking place. So that, it's like a safe space. Now, there is no demilitarized zone for us with God. You are either in enemy territory or you are in the kingdom of God. You're either opposed to God or you are for God. God is either opposed to you or God is for you. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. You're either proud or you are humble. There is no demilitarized zone. There is no neutral territory. And if you haven't had the consequences yet of your pride, be very careful to think, well, that means I can keep on going. Because not having consequences is one of the, f- the worst kinds of judgment because it hardens us more and more and more against the warnings that God brings. So if there's pride, it needs to be uh, removed from you. So what is pride? You might say to me, what does pride look like? So let's have a look in the scriptures. In Proverbs 8.13, pride is evil behavior and perverse speech. In Isaiah 3.8, pride rebels against God's glorious presence. In Psalm 101.5, pride slanders his neighbor. In Proverbs 3.10, pride is bitter disagreement and disunity. In Psalm 10.4, pride does not seek God and has no room in the heart for God. In Romans 1.25, pride denies God's design for humanity. In Psalm 14.1, pride says in his heart, there is no God. In Isaiah 22.11, pride refuses to ask for help. In Jeremiah 22.21, pride does not obey God's voice. In 1 Corinthians 13.4, pride envies and it boasts. In Obadiah 1 verse 3, pride asks, who will bring me to the ground? Pride has many forms, but it only has one end desire, self-glorification. Do you live for yourself or do you live for God? Pride is living for yourself, and humility is living for God. Pride is to have your comfort and esteem and praise be your highest treasure. And humility is to have Jesus Christ and his great gospel as your greatest treasure, to be the desire and longing of your heart. Pride is to live for self-worth. The pearl of great price for you is your own exaltation. But for humble believers, the pearl of great prices is Jesus, worthy of laying it all down for. And a quick test. If I gave you a crown, would your instinct be to put it on your head 
or to cast it at the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the most barefaced, I gave you a lot of examples of what pride looks like and what it does in the scriptures. The most barefaced, evil, scriptural example of pride is that we see Satan desired to be like God. Right? He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to ascend uh, to be in the same position as God. He desired the throne. He's the glory thief 1.0. Don't join ranks with him. Because if you share in his schemes, surely you will share in his end. So I think you're getting a sense of what pride might be like. It is, it is to steal the glory of God. It's to desire to be worshipped. It's to enthrone yourself. It's to want to rule your own life. But one of the most wicked expressions of pride is spiritual pride, which is self-righteousness. It's the spiritual pride of legalism. So legalism says... I can be right with God by my own wonderful works. This righteousness, this right standing that comes through works, is a myth. It doesn't exist. God says that it is vile to him, our efforts to become holy. Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. This, to say that you can be right with God is the height of pride if you want to do that in your strength on the basis of your works. It's walking up to God, throwing open the doors of the throne room and saying, Let me in, I am good. We read that passage from Revelation, What do you think happens to the person who tries to enter through the gates clothed in their own righteousness. Narrow is the gate. Instead, unlike I, uh, who have no more place in the presence of God than a dung heap in the bedroom of a king, if I am in Christ, I am clothed with his righteousness. He's the righteous one. He's the holy one. And therefore, boldly I approach the throne, as we sang earlier, on the merits of Christ, not the merits of myself. Pride says, I can do all this. I can get to God in my own strength, and you'll die trying. But humility receives the grace of God and immediately is united eternally, vitally, spiritually, with the one true God. And nothing can separate us from his love. So be humble. Do you live for yourself or do you live with God? Live for God. So what is humility and how do I get it? That sounds like a good book title. Uh, this is what humility means. Uh, it was uh, Kelvin who said that the what, what we need to do is we need to look at God. We need to get right knowledge of God and we need to look at ourselves and get right knowledge of ourselves in relationship to God. So for me what that is saying is we need to understand the nature of God and the nature of ourselves. And we need both to be truly humble. Uh, so let's look at what God is like. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And 4 verse 31 says, For you, the Lord your God is a merciful God. 
Psalm, uh, Psalm 33, 11 to 13 says, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Psalm 56 says, God himself is judge. John 4.24 says, God is spirit. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, all his words are flawless. Isaiah 44.6 says that he is the first and the last. Beside him there is no God. So this is our God. He's a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's merciful. His purposes and plans stand firm forever. He's the judge. He's spirit. His words are flawless. He's the first. He's the last. And beside him, there is no God. We can think about his attributes. It's listed in Romans 1, some of them. His, uh, his eternal existence, his extraordinary power. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. These are things that I don't, I don't share in. I can't say I, I'm all-knowing. I can't say that. That's, that's pride. But if I look to God, I'm, I'm humbled by considering how great he is. And above all these things, what, what underpins God's attributes? What is the one thing that underlies all of it? God is holy. God is other. He's completely different. He's separate. He's apart. He's the creator. There is none like him. He's one of a kind. And so when we look at God in all his glory, all his splendor, all his power and majesty, his mercy, his goodness, his grace, his judgment, his justice, his wrath, his love, um, his, his kindness, his patience, his long-suffering... When we look at all these things, this glorious tapestry of the jewels of the attributes of God and his utter holiness, how can we not humble ourselves to the dust? He is so worthy of glory and of honor and praise. And then there's me. There's me. Sinful and rebellious. Romans 3.23 says, I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God. James 4.14 says, what is my life? I'm a mist that vanishes. It appears for a little time and then I'm gone. I'm not from everlasting to everlasting. I'm not eternally self-existent. I'm 100% dependent on every breath that I take. And the fact that my molecules haven't all fallen across into the floor and I haven't become sludge is purely because Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. I'm very different from God. In Romans 9.20, for those who are proud and those who wish to have their way and to live according to their own desires, apart from what God has required of them, the answer says to you, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me this way? Don't you get it? God, in his grace, creates the universe and stoops down and gathers the dust and breathes life into it and forms you and I. And we rise up and we spit in his face and revile his law, disobey him, curse him, run from him. 
and, and want to wallow in our shame and self-pity and wickedness rather than to worship and walk in the garden with, and in fellowship with God. This creature formed from the dust aims at the throne of God. And we know what then happens to those who are proud. But because of God's great love and mercy, he made a way by which we can be reunited with him and walk once again in this fellowship in the garden. And that's the gospel which is available to the humble. Do you live for yourself or do you live for God? So what are the effects of this humility? What happens when you are humble? So... Humility gets God's attention. Isaiah 66.2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So if you're humble, if you're contrite in spirit, and if you tremble at his word, he is the one, you are the one to whom he will look meaning upon whom he sets his eyes and love and affection and blessing and grace. There's actually a way in which you really can access, guaranteed, the grace of God, and that is to be humble. Because this is a promise he's made, and God does what he says. So, so if, you are, if you humble yourself, God will pour out his grace. And our text today that, we, that we're looking at, it very specifically says it brings riches, glory or honor, and life. And when you look at the Proverbs, it is based on a, there's a kind of works principle that underlies it. So these are like general ideas for life, uh, general descriptions of how life and, and godliness work. So it is not, you will be materially, financially rich if you are humble. But uh, you do experience the riches of God. And the greatest of those is every spiritual blessing we have received in the heavenly places in Christ, have we not? And you, and you, will, be, you will be honored and you will have life. And paradoxically, when you humble yourself, God will exalt you. We're going to look at that in 1 Peter 5 just now. But if you try and exalt yourself, he will bring you down. So that if, you, if you're really after true glory, glory that won't kill you, it's only to be found by being humble and God will lift you up at the proper time. So you can, you can have this, uh, this glory that God wants to, to give you when he makes you finally like Christ, um, when he returns, uh, but it is only accessible through humility. Another effect of humility is intimacy with God. That's in James 4 verse 6. We cannot be proud and actually walk with the Lord. To walk with the Lord is to be humble. So to be proud is to be away from the Lord. And you all know this in your relationships, especially those of you who are married and are in close proximity to one another. Nothing creates space in that house like pride. Somebody being haughty and arrogant, that is off-putting. You, you want to put that person away from you. And if we as sinners recognize this is not great behavior and we push people away, how much more does pride create distance from the holy God? So 1 Peter 5, 6 says, If you humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, at the proper time, he will exalt you. 
He will exalt you. He will lift you up and he will bless you and he will make his face to shine upon you and he will give you peace. These are wonderful promises from God. The other effect of humility is that we can safely enjoy God's blessing. Ironically, one of the biggest ways God judges people who are proud is to, is to reward them with false rewards. So if you're proud of your riches and you're stubborn in it, and you won't yield, God might make you richer. And your heart will be hardened. The cycle will continue. But to those who are humble, God adds blessing which, which comes without sorrow. Right? The blessing of the Lord will come without sorrow added. Humility also brings relief. Right? You can put down your, your God. You can drop the act. You can, you can be who God has made you to be. You can walk in what he has for you. You can, you, can, you can be who he is making you in Christ. And you can trust that God is providentially working out all things for your good. If you try and put the veil up and construct every little detail of your life, and every time you meet someone, you've got to remember which face you put on when you met them last time. That's exhausting. You're, going to, you're literally going to die, right? That's stressful. You're going to die. You're going to build up anxieties and that kind of thing. But when, you, when you're humble and you, and you have a right view of yourself, if you esteem yourself biblically, I mean, you put yourself in the right place, it will be like, ah, fresh breath, clean feeling. No longer having to hop into the wardrobe like Superman every time you, you want to go out into public. So if you humble yourself, you will experience relief. That life's all about you, not God. Strength. Those who rely on the Lord will find strength. Psalm 62. His strength flows to those who acknowledge their dependence on him. If you lean on God, if you make yourself weak, recognize your weakness and come to him with that open hand, you will be strong. Because the God of angel armies will be on your side. Isn't that amazing? And God orders his providence to support those who are humble. He will take care of you if you are humble. But ultimately, the greatest blessing that humility brings is being able to access saving reality of Jesus' work. Because faith requires coming to God with nothing in your hand. says, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You can't have faith and not be humble. You can't, so that's what it means. It's to recognize your own bankruptcy and your dependence on Christ. And, and then you will be, you will be saved. You only, only the humble can come to the gospel to receive it. And we'll look at that more in a minute. But the question then we should be asking is, like, we understand pride, we understand humility, and we understand the effects of both, but how do you become humble? And it starts with a diagnosis. The scripture provides a scary diagnosis, but a wonderful cure. 
So the question now is not, is there pride in my heart? The question is, where in my heart is the pride? It's there. And we need to put it to death. So here's a few ways in which we can grow in humility. Worship God. Not just on Sunday. Worship God. If you are living your life, everything that your hands find to do, you're doing it to the glory of God. You have to ask questions to get to that point, and that's during the day is how you're going to evaluate whether you're living for yourself or whether you're living for God. In this moment, am I living for myself or am I living for God? Am I standing up here because I like a hundred faces looking at me? Is that why I'm here? If so, I, I need to get off here right now and someone else must come up. Anything you're doing, if you're driving and raging at taxis, your life is about you and how late you are and all that kind of thing. It's not about God in that moment. So we need to worship God all the time. And that's naturally going to bring us away from ourselves, right? To, to give glory to God, you all know what that feeling is like, that wonderful freedom of worship. Just dropping the self and sitting at the feet of God. That's what worship does for us. Secondly, fear of the Lord. So the text makes a strong link between humility and fear of the Lord. It's impossible to fear the Lord in the biblical sense and to be proud. Because to fear the Lord is to recognize that he, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It recognizes how amazing God is. Um, it, it sits in awe and wonder at the greatness um, of, our, of our high king. So when we fear the Lord, that, that is going to put pride to death because it requires that humility. And if you humble yourself, you'll be supplied with grace and God will renew your days. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs 3.8. Fear of the Lord is refreshment to your bones. Think about that for a moment. It means that, so if you are tired and weary and broken and exhausted here today... Fear of the Lord will put life from in the very deepest part of you. The core of anything is what's in the middle of your bones, in your body. And outward, from you, from the outward, from the inside out, will radiate this life. He will refresh you. Times of refreshing that, that aren't just a nice party to distract you from what's happening, but actually for that to be an inward spiritual reality that affects you from the very core of your being. That's what the fear of the Lord will do for you. If you humble yourself and fear the Lord, you will be refreshed in your days and from the very inner core of your being. The other way to cultivate humility is to give thanks. Thanksgiving is a humbling experience. Why? Because it acknowledges that what I have, friends, did not come from me. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. No? Talk to me. Yeah. So if I have things, it's because God has blessed me with them. And therefore, when I say thank you, I acknowledge that, hey, I don't have a right to this stuff. It's solely the grace of God. People might take it away from me. Um, I might give it away. I might use it. Whatever the case, it belongs to the Lord. So everything you have, give thanks for. And you will free yourself from the tremendous and horrible anxiety of thinking that you've earned all that you have. 
connected to this would be to, to give. If you really want to test whether you own your stuff or your stuff owns you, think about giving it away. If that produces some kind of like searing pain in you, you got your answer. Giving is a humbling experience. Serve. Some people in their love languages have the, the, uh, like to express love by serving. And that's great. That's really good. Uh, but service, biblically, is something that has a cost. It's something that costs you something. Um, uh, it is not just doing something for somebody, but it is a sacrifice, putting something aside for someone else. And the greatest example of this is, of course, Jesus. He is the king of heaven, and he came not to be served, but to serve. So if you say, right, the, the son of God has come to serve, so I'll outsource all that to him. I'm not, I, don't need, I, I, don't, I don't need you. Are you higher than the high king of heaven that you should not stoop low to serve, to think of others more highly than yourself? We're going to talk about that next week. This week is about humility before God. Next week, humility uh, with others. So serve. Pray. This is another acknowledgement of our dependence on God. Prayerlessness is pride. Write that down if you can. Prayerlessness is pride. Why? Because it says, I don't need God. I can run my life in my own strength. It doesn't come to God daily and say, the breath in my lungs comes from you. I give you thanks. Give me more breath. Give me another day to serve you. Give me another day to enjoy what you have given me. Give me another day to love the people in my life. Prayerlessness says, I have this major situation at work or in my family, but in my own strength, with my own wisdom, with my own insight, with my own experience, I will do this myself. Why did you even come to God in the first place? And I'm preaching to myself here. This prayer, quality, long prayer, and regular prayer is the biggest challenge for me in my life. And I think it's, for a lot of people, the case as well. So pray. Go to prayer meetings. Invite people to pray. Pray with one another. Pray when you get up. Um, no company ends a financial year and says, right, I think we need to set a strategy for last year. So why, do you, why would you wait till the end of the day to ask God for supplies of grace for the day? Begin in the early hours in the presence of the Lord, sitting at his feet and, and cry out. Acknowledge your dependence and your need for him. Confess your sins Ooh. to the Lord and to one another. We must confess our sins to God and he'll be, he's faithful to forgive. And we must confess our sins to one another that you may be healed, it says in, in, in James. So the, the idea there being that you get out from under the, the curse of hidden sin. It's not that an individual can forgive you, right? That's not how it works. Only God can forgive your sin. No man in a box can forgive your sin. Okay, only God. Okay, you can't, you, you, if you, but if you go to others, you all know the relief of confessing your sins to one another because what is in the darkness is brought into the light and it no longer has power. As long as it's hidden, Satan pitches up daily and he's just like, you know that sin. Sorry, I'm sorry. 
you know that sin? Um, someone's going to find out. Once that thing is in the open, Satan has no battleground. Where's his accusation? Everybody knows. You can say it back. <laughs> All right. Have friends to speak into your life. Another one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Most Christians' sanctification dies the death of flattery. It surrounds itself with people who go, Oh, you're amazing. You're fantastic. You, you couldn't do anything wrong. Like, you know, you, you're just great the way you are. That, that is not true. That is not true. You are amazing in, in that you are a new creation in Christ and God has given you gifts and people love you and you love people and that is amazing. But you also need to, you need to be in reality. You need to be in reality. You're still a sinner. Until Christ returns, you might be a new creation in Christ, but yet you do continue to sin. Your identity is not that you are a sinner. Your identity is that you are a sinner who has been saved by grace. You're a new creation in Christ. But yet, this flesh remains attached. And Paul says, I know what I want to do, but I can't do it. Who's going to remove this body of death from me? Okay, so it's only when Christ returns that we will have sinless perfection. But until then, we need to surround ourselves with friends who will encourage us and who will put the knife of honest evaluation of your character to your flesh so that you may cut off what is dead. So surround yourself with faithful friends to speak into your life. And finally, the most important way to become humble is to consider the gospel. As Christians, what distinguishes every single area of our thought and our actions our, um, our beliefs is the gospel. That's what makes us different from the world. It's the true power behind the Christian life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and what did he do? That's, the, that's what the gospel answers. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is the absolute core of humility. So if, you, if we and our inflated, sinful, prideful selves want to be shrunk down to the right size, we need to go to the foot of the cross. And that is where we will be cut down to the appropriate size. size. Because outside of the gospel, the only thing that people latch onto is the law, which says the power of my obedience merits the life and blessing of God. And that will just blow you up. But the gospel looks at Christ and beats its chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guess to whom of those two the grace of God flows? Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the, the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what, what is Jesus saying? This is a sting, stinging rebuke to the Pharisees. They're like, well, you know, we obey the law. He's like, oh, good. I didn't come for the people like who, who have their own righteousness, like as if you guys are all good. I came for the people who are sick, those who have rightly diagnosed their state in life, those who come before God and, and beat their chest and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's nothing I can generate myself for righteousness. I need Jesus Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, 
the only thing that I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust is to look at the Son of God and especially His cross. That's the power to be humbled, is to look at Jesus, the Son of God, and especially His cross. Spurgeon said a similar thing. For my own part, my constant prayer is that I may know my worst case, whatever the knowledge of that may cost me. I know that an accurate estimate of my own heart can never be otherwise than lowering to my self-esteem. But God forbid that I be spared the humiliation which springs from the truth. The sweet red apples of self-esteem are deadly poison laced. Who would wish to be destroyed by them? But the bitter fruits of self-knowledge are always healthful, especially when washed down with the waters of repentance and sweetened with a draught from the wells of salvation. He who loves his own soul will not despise them. If you want to care for your own soul, if you want life, you need to be humble and not esteem yourself above Christ. You must see Jesus and his work. Nothing else has the power to defeat this pride and usher you into the presence of God. There is no willpower, there's no belief, there's no self-discipline. Only at the cross can you meet the end of yourself. Only there can pride be truly defeated. Only there did mercy meet justice. Only there did love and wrath meet sin and holiness. It's the true example of humility that the high king of heaven would lay down his life for you. Think about this crown of thorns that we just heard. The righteous God came to dwell among us. He's worthy to be worshipped. And instead, he was beaten and mocked and scorned and nailed to a tree and had a crown of thorns put on his head. He laid his life down as a substitute to be your own substitute before God so that you wouldn't receive what you deserved. So this is why we must reflect on the doctrines of grace. There is nothing that you did to merit your salvation. You are solely a recipient of the grace of God. And that should humble us. That while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it's not of your own doing, not a result of works that no one may boast. It's because it's the free gift of God. So if you want to humble yourself, consider the gospel. So let's close. As we think about this question of do you want to, do you live for yourself or do you live for God? John Stott said, at every age of Christian growth, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. We must also recognize that not one of us is beyond the grace of God. If you're, if you're not a believer, if you don't, don't follow Christ, if you, if you are not a new creation, there is the only form of, the worst form of pride you can have is to say, I'm beyond God's grace. To bring reproach upon the grace of God, it can conquer all of your sin. And if you're a believer and you're struggling in sin and there's hidden sin, the grace of God is there uh, to conquer it and to bring you uh, his blessing. So if you humble yourself, the fountain of God's grace will be opened up to you. 
God will be on your side and he will sanctify you and, and wash you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So let's thank God for, for this. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the promises that there are in Scripture that if we're humble and we fear you, you will add to us riches and glory and life. And in, in, in humility before you, you will exalt us up at the proper time that we can experience relief and intimacy and be the recipients of your grace. We thank you for your great gospel and sending your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.